Romans 9, beginning at verse 30, this is God's holy and infallible word. Uh, What then shall we say? And of course, this is going on from all that was before, which we'll review in just a bit. That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge." Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. It's God's word for us tonight. May he bless it to us. So the last several weeks, we've been spending some time in Romans 9, um, and the NIV heading for that chapter is God's sovereign choice. We read about election. Paul quotes God saying in the Old Testament, and we, we had a sermon focusing on this, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and about Jacob and Esau, Paul says that before the twins were born, their mother, Rebecca, was told 
the older will serve the younger. And God said, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Even earlier in the book of Romans, of course, Paul basically said the same sort of thing when he emphasized that we're not saved through any merit of our own. We're saved because of God's grace. And then, really in Romans 9, he's making that crystal clear. We are the clay. He is the potter. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? God is absolutely sovereign. His sovereign choice, in fact, goes back before the foundations of the world were established, according to Ephesians 1. I believe his first thought in eternity concerning his creation was his elect, his people. And then ever since then, he's been working out his great salvation plan for his glory through the creation of this world, through the fall, through sending Jesus and the Spirit and eventually the consummation coming again to usher in eternity. What a glorious and what a comforting truth this all is that the Bible tells us about and that we embrace. It's not about us. I think the quote Pastor Matthew used uh, the other week was something like this. If our salvation were in our hands, we would be sure to lose it. So it's a very comforting truth, this sovereignty of God in our salvation. But then the thoughtful person asks at some point, well, what about us, right? What about our calling? It seems like the Bible talks about human responsibility, doesn't it? Uh, when Jesus says, come to me, and when he invites us to enter into the kingdom of heaven, is that even a genuine invitation? Is that a, a real call? Well, we see in verse 30 and following where we started that Israel is blamed for rejecting the Lord for not believing. It's their fault. But how can that possibly be if it's all up to God? What we read today seems to contradict what we just read. But of course, it can't really be a contradiction. Paul, from what we can tell, was a pretty bright guy. More than that, this is God's inspired word. God's sovereignty and human responsibility may seem to be a problem, but they're not. This isn't a problem. The fact is, as Tim Keller puts it, and I'm going to quote him here, the Bible never says an event happened totally in accord with God's plan, and therefore human beings were not responsible for their actions. And the other way, he puts it to the Bible also never says that human beings were responsible for their actions, therefore the event was not certain to happen according to God's plan. And the fact is, the Bible clearly teaches two truths. The complete sovereignty of God over all history and two, the responsibility of every human being to believe, to call on the name of the Lord. And as we read our verses, uh, the end of 9 and all of 10, we see the solution to this apparent problem. 
And it's this. It turns out that our faith is part of God's plan. Our faith is part of the plan. We're going to spend most of our our time here, um, and we're really going to walk through three different sections of, of, of our verses. So if you have your Bible open, you should be able to follow right along. From chapter 9, verse 30, to chapter 10, verse 7 or so, Paul is especially talking about our faith being part of the plan. He's talking about this in relation to the people of Israel and their failure as a whole to believe as a people. Not that some Jews didn't come to Christ, but as a whole, they rejected Christ. They failed to believe. Though God is sovereign in salvation, the Bible is saying, we read it here pretty plainly, that Israel yet is to blame for not believing in Jesus. What shall we say, says verse 30? It's ironic, Paul brings this up, that the Gentiles... Gentiles were all the non-Jewish people of the world. That's how the Jews referred to them. The Gentiles, it's very ironic, the Gentiles were more, were more open to the gospel. Paul talked about the Gentiles in the ancient world. If you remember way back to Romans 1, he talked about their sin and their evil and how far they were from God in very striking language. So it's ironic that they now are more open to the gospel. But Israel, the Jewish people, the ones who all along had valued righteousness, that they rejected the gospel. Why? Verse 32, because they were going about it by works rather than through faith. The ones who knew the most about God didn't come to know him in the end. And those who were farthest away from God, the Gentiles, came near to the Lord. The ones who wanted righteousness ended up dead in their sins because they were grasping the wrong kind of righteousness. We read they stumbled over Jesus the rock because they clung to a self-righteousness instead of humbly accepting a righteousness outside themselves and trusting in Jesus. That's in verse 33. And, and you remember, we don't always use this language, but it's accurate. Israel was the church. And if we think about it in that way, it becomes even more striking. The people of God in that day, these were God's people, and they missed salvation. We're set they thought. We're, we're all good. Uh, my parents are part of the people of God. My grandparents, they could say, and even further back. And, and look at our lifestyle as God's people compared to this rotten pagan world around us. They had this incredible history and heritage. They thought they were all good. They were proud of all of these factors that were about themselves in the end, who they were, what they did or didn't do. No one knew this approach this line of thinking more than Paul himself. He grew up among God's people. He thought he was serving God for a long time in his life, but it turned out he actually wasn't. 
And, and so he's emotionally engaged in all this. 10 verse 1, my heart's desire and my prayer, he says, is that the Israelites would be saved. They were zealous, his people, for God, verse 2. But they missed God. Why is that? Paul says it's because their zeal was not based on knowledge. You know, some, some people think it doesn't matter too much what you believe in life as long as you're sincere in your belief, as long as you're maybe passionate about your belief. But that's not true. The Jews were sincere. They were zealous. But it wasn't good enough. They needed right, correct knowledge also. And we all need that. We, we might think of them, oh, poor people. They, they, just, they just didn't know. You can't blame someone for being ignorant. But Paul goes on to say they had everything they needed to know. Verses 4 through 7 talk about how all the Old Testament was leading up to Christ. But verse 4, they would not submit to this. They would not submit to God's way of righteousness, what he was teaching them, what he was showing them, where he was leading them. They purposefully stayed in their ignorance. They refused to think and reflect on the things that God had openly revealed to them. They stubbornly insisted on their own way. It was always salvation by faith. But Israel, God's people, God's own people in Old Testament times, chose not to have faith. They chose not to believe. And, and, and so, so we see in all of this that it's God's plan that we are saved by his electing love and that human faith is part of the process of that getting carried out. So the responsibility was on Israel when they didn't believe, which resulted in them missing salvation. As we move on in the chapter, verses 8 through 13 especially, Paul shows us that this call to believe, the call to faith, goes to all people, not just the Jewish people. Gentile and Jew. You and me too. Verse 8 says, the word is near you. And then if you jump ahead to the end of the chapter, uh, Verses 16 to 21 kind of belong with this too. They talk there again about those verses, about Israel's rejection of the good news. And in verse 21, God is quoted as saying, all, it's a, it's a striking picture, all day long I have held out my hands. It's a beautiful picture, but then it says, to a disobedient and obstinate people. And it's because they chose not to believe. That picture is helpful and a good one in talking about our faith in this sovereign plan of God. The word is near you. God holds out that gift of salvation with his hands to us. It's a beautiful and it's a precious gift. To refuse it is to be lost forever. To accept it is to have eternal life. Israel did not receive the gift. Each person has the opportunity to receive this gift by faith. Ignorance is no excuse to anyone because the gospel message 
is going out for all to hear. And besides that, you remember, thinking about Romans 1 again, Paul says there is evidence of God in creation all around for everyone to see. Just as God's people Israel had no excuse for their ignorance, no one in the entire world has an excuse because they don't know. God reveals himself. God's plan is to extend his grace through faith, through that instrument of faith. That verse, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, tells us a couple sides of true faith. It's something that happens in our hearts. It's from our mouths. Verse 11, all we need to do is trust in Christ. We reach out. We accept the gift that's held out through faith. Through faith. Verse 12, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. In other words, Paul is saying everybody needs him. And praise God, God is equally accessible to everybody. Anybody can receive Jesus. That's kind of what no difference between Jew and Gentile there refers to. Everybody needs Jesus, and anybody can have him. Just call on his name. Israel's failure to believe and everyone's invitation to call on Jesus' name highlight Again, that our faith, our believing, is part of God's sovereign plan of salvation. Verses 14 and 15 show human responsibility in God's plan as well, in a little different way, by showing us the means God uses for faith. We see that God uses us. God uses his church, all of us together, the church everywhere in all this. Sometimes the series of questions that you see in verses 14 and 15 are, are called a, a kind of golden chain. A golden chain with, uh, maybe we could even say that, that the final link of the chain being our belief in a way. We read there, you can only call on Jesus if you have believed You can believe only if you heard, and you hear through preaching. And preachers are sent. So the process to faith starts with the sending. God himself sends preachers. The prophets first, way back when in Old Testament time. Then Jesus sent the apostles, the disciples, the apostles out. And then the early church was off and running And the Spirit empowered the church then and continues to empower the church today. Those who are sent by God preach. The Bible says that's how we hear. And and of course, this is why as believers, we have such a high view of this strange thing to the world called preaching. It's a key element in this golden chain that leads to God's people being saved. The Word gets near you through preaching, and me too especially, through the ministry of God's Word. God held out His hands all day to Israel. Verse 21, how? 
Well, not literally. God doesn't have hands, but through his servants, uh, the prophets who proclaimed God's word, and and through his servants today, preachers and, and all of us, the church together. Preaching is powerful. Well, why? It's because through it we hear, which leads to faith. What do we hear exactly in preaching? God's word, yes, but it's more than that. It's more than our NIV translation suggests. When it says, how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard, the original language doesn't have the of before the whom. And the ESV translation usually makes a note of this even. So it should be, and listen so you can hear the difference, it should be, how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? Not of whom. Of whom means about. How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? Who is the whom? Well, going back to calling and believing, of course, It's Jesus, and and here's what it comes down to. What people hear in faithful preaching is not stuff about Jesus. In faithful preaching, we're not not hearing facts about Jesus, but we're hearing Jesus himself according to the word of God. He speaks himself in a special way through the faithful proclamation of his word. It's mind-boggling if you're actually thinking about what that means. And, and then you wonder why we value preaching so much as a church. Well, we have a very high view of preaching. We have a view of preaching that I believe comes from God's Word that in preaching, Jesus speaks to us Himself. You wonder why we're committed to two sermons every Sunday. Well, it's because the Bible teaches that the good shepherd of the sheep speaks himself to the flock in preaching. Have you ever had it that you felt like God was speaking directly to you in a sermon? I have. You know why? It's not just a feeling. It's because he does. He does. He really does. That doesn't make a sermon or a preacher infallible but it does make preaching a very special event in the life of God's people. We call it the primary means of God's grace. We read here how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Always awkward for a preacher to read those verses. I don't know if this is exactly right, but I kind of like Tim Keller's suggestion that this is not so much about the beauty of the preacher's feet. I like that because I'd be in trouble if it were about that. I keep my feet covered as much as possible. But this is about the beauty of the message, the beauty of the task of the church to send out preachers, to get the word out, the beauty of the mission to bring the good news, the beauty of calling people to faith. And so you see here too, this is how we are part of God's sovereign plan. We're called to faith ourselves And we're called to be part of the mission of making sure people hear the word. 
And that leads us to just a final thought tonight. Because our faith is part of God's great plan, that's why faith formation is such a priority for us. Faith formation is a bit of a buzzword in the church the last years, especially in the CRC. And I truthfully, I'm not a guy who likes buzzwords. But faith formation is a good word, and it's a vital idea. Faith formation. Because our faith is part of the plan, that's why from our earliest days, we want our young ones to be hearing and learning God's word. That's why uh, as, as a church together, we prioritize family devotions and Christian school and, and Sunday school and, and listening to good Christian worship music. It's all to awaken and strengthen our faith so that we and those in our care, in our homes, and in our church home would respond and profess that faith in Jesus Christ. This is why we have a desire, don't we, to grow in faith day by day, year by year, to humbly sit under the preaching of God's word, to have godly conversations, to be in Bible studies. Our faith is activated through hearing Christ's voice in the word. From the cradle to the grave, we want to be in the constant environment of God's gracious word for the building up of our faith. We want to breathe that sort of air in, and we want to exhale all those pollutants of this world that try to erode our faith. Our faith, our growth in faith, our sharing the faith, our proclaiming the faith, it's all part of God's marvelous plan from before the foundations of the earth. It's how he gathers his elect This is what we do together at Faith Church. Faith formation for ourselves to be built up and to make brand new disciples too. Whether we're talking about our own kids, people in the community. It's beautiful. It's beautiful, friends. May may we never be like ancient Israel who had all the blessings and squandered them. But may we lay down all that we are, all that we've ever done, humble ourselves, call on the name of Jesus, and receive God's gift of salvation through faith. May we prioritize faith formation for all ages, for all people, with God's word at the heart of everything we do, since our faith is God's will and his glorious plan for all his people. Amen.